0: Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today I'm speaking with Carol Sanford, and everybody listening is in for a real treat. Uh, Reading her her bio. Doing some research, I I found uh, that this woman that we're we're about to meet is uh, incredibly accomplished, has lived this amazing life and helped so many people. And just her her history is, is quite incredible. And I I want to share uh, just a bit of it with you as I introduce her, um, because I think, like me, you will be a little bit blown away by um, some of the things that she has accomplished. So uh, Carol is a consistently recognized thought leader, working side by side with Fortune 500 and new economy executive teams, uh, designing and leading systemic business change and design. She is a senior fellow of social innovation um, at, at Babson College, uh, founder of the regenerative business development community, the change, uh, change agent development community. Her best selling books have 15 awards and are required reading at leading business and management schools, including Harvard, Stanford, Haas Berkeley, and MIT. Carol also partners with producing executive education through Babson College, K.O.S. pilot in Denmark, University of Washington, and the Lewis Institute at Babson. Her books are filled with case stories from around the worldwide diversity represented. To that end, Carol has been leading regenerative education efforts in both Fortune 500 and new economy businesses for more than 40 years. Her client list includes long-term relationships with Colgate Europe and Africa, and DuPont Canada, US, Asia, and Europe. She also works with the new economy companies like Intel, Agilent, and leaders of corporate responsibility such as Seventh Generation, Numiti, and Guayaki. Google uses her work as a framework in the Food Innovation Lab. She is the CEO of Carol Sanford Institute, an education company on building regenerative businesses that become non-displaceable in their markets. The Carol Sanford Institute is based in Seattle, uh, in the Seattle region of the Puget Sound. She's published dozens of works in 10 languages, including a series of articles in Executive Excellence, Stephen Covey's newsletter, and at work a uh, Barrett Kohler journal. She is the author of five books with three publishers. I, I wanna dig into her philosophy and really get a sense of what has, uh, you know, helped her develop such uh, such an extensive network of uh, businesses that she works with uh, the influence that she has had over so many uh, corporations and organizations. And I, I just, um, I'm thrilled to be speaking with you, Carol, and have been excited to to be able to do this interview and just kind of pick your brain and uh, well, learn about the the influences in your life that have led you to such success. I'm thrilled to just have this opportunity. So uh, thank you very much. Yeah you're very welcome. Uh,
1: I don't feel like uh, I'm any different than the average person trying to make a difference. I think for me, that's probably the most important question. Not what have I done, but has it mattered? Uh, does it does it make a difference? And you know, one of the things I got to do with Colgate in Africa was work with them as they were uh, coming out of apartheid and Mandela was coming into office and we work with Colgate in a way to change so many things for the country as well as the company, including building small businesses uh, in Soweto and Alexandria townships, but also moving the leadership, of the company to reflect the racial population so that you had uh, very wise people So don't worry about that. Take it, who had never gone to school because black Africans weren't allowed to, who within six months became uh, 95% of the leadership for the company. We grew the company about 35% uh, every six months uh, in revenue with that leadership. And when people say to me, but, what do you do with these black Africans who never went to school? Salios, the GM said, well, that didn't mean they didn't go to school of life. They had to figure out how to survive a country and lead the township where there were no leadership really coming in a more uh, governmental way. And so I think I probably have the wisest people in uh, in the country, he said, helping lead what we're doing with Colgate. That's what makes my life meaningful. We were able to do good for the business, for the townships, for the country. And Midnella gave Colgate and what he called the constitutional award for that.
0: Wow! Yeah, that's so. I'm I'm curious about your background. Like, you know, I'd like to dig into your roots and and um, like where. Where were you born and raised and, you know, who, who raised you? Like who are these amazing people? Uh,
1: Well, I, by the way, I have six books now since I sent you that. My sixth book was out a month and a half ago. uh, And I tell a lot of that story in my previous book, The Regenerative Life. Uh, So I had a racist, cruel father who punished me by putting me in closets for hours and even a day at a time. Now, I am claustrophobic as a result of that. However, I spent a lot of time learning how to be with my own thoughts. It was a little like being in a prison cell. And that probably would have driven me insane because my sister and mother didn't do well in the setting, but my mother's father was part Mohawk, Iroquois nation. And he had been raised the first until uh, he was about 10 on an Eastern Oklahoma uh, Native American reservation. He had a lot to do with my upbringing. And he taught me how to deal with this crazy environment I was in from an experience of uh, people, his family, his grandparents, etc., cetera, who had dealt with a trail of tears because they happened to be in the Southern part of the United States. So he had learned a kind of wisdom about how you look at life that most of us don't get. We just get angry and, or we get crazy. And I, you know, I'm probably a little crazy from having my father and my mother became mentally ill. So this doesn't sound like the story you'd think you'd hear, right? But if you can have a way to work on it, Uh, a methodology, you might call it, of how you work on life when it seems to not work the way you would hope children would be raised. It had a huge impact on me. And I think as a result, a couple of things happened. One is I was able to recognize really wise people along the way and know when things that people were trying to do, like I even understood what my father was afraid of. He was terrified, uh, and I I understood how that drove him. At some point, took took a few years, but I also could see that it wasn't even going to get him what he wanted. And I could see people working on trying to overcome racism, and I could see that the way they were working on it wasn't going to work uh, because it was based on false ideas about how. Uh, Humans and race and democracies and stuff work. So when I ran into, I don't know whether you have heard of Thomas Kuhn, he wrote a book called The Structure of the Scientific Revolution. It was um, um, the introduction of the idea of paradigm shift. You know, and now that's kind of common phrase, oh yeah, if you think differently than you, you used to, the way you used to think won't work, get a better way to think. Well, I got to sit in classes with him when I was a student at UC Berkeley, while he was a, I think I called him a visiting lecturer. And uh, he's, a, he's a physicist. I'm not, I knew nothing, but he was more a philosopher. And he introduced me to the idea that people change, and I grew up in a way no one believed anyone could change, except by being put in jail, or death, or uh, removal from the situation. And that you had to pick the talents of bright people. And when I met Thomas Kuhn, and I was not quite twenty years old, and I got this idea that people change. And someone in the class asked him, "Well, how do you do that?" I mean you're talking about these scientists changing. How do you do that? And he looked at us and he said, well, I told you the idea it's your job to figure out how to do that. That became my life's work. And I, there were a lot of stuff in between in high school and things, but those are probably two pivotal points. Having Shorty, my grandfather was called, and Thomas Kuhn opened doors uh, that changed how I, what I worked on, how I made sense of my own past, there's a start.
0: You know, I, I should have expected um, something to the effect of what you just described to me, because in, in my experience, the, the people that I've met that have done these amazing things and, and helped to shape cultures, they didn't have an easy life coming up. Yeah, it's those people that have had these tremendous uh, hardships, and you know, even sometimes traumatic events. That when they have survived those situations, and and come out of it with a mindset that I'm going to. I'm going to make a difference in this world. That experience was not one that I'm going to allow to define me. I'm gonna allow it to add fuel to to my mission in life. And I feel like it it was just this aha moment, you talking about that, that while on the surface, you know, reading, you know your about your education and your accomplishments. I think one could easily kind of think, well, you know, she probably lived a life of privilege, and you know, she went to these great schools. And but the fact of the matter is that you learned about adversity at a very young age, and uh, I, I think through the help of your your grandfather was able to adopt the mindset of, you know, one that, yeah, there might be adversity, there might be a huge obstacle in my way, but I know that I can figure a way to the other side. Um, and I think it's that kind of mindset that really, you know, it, those are the change makers in, you know, throughout history. Those that have, uh, you know, contributed so much to our society and um, the the good things in our society. So, uh, yeah, that's that's incredible. Um, but can you tell me a little bit about uh, like how did you end up at, at Berkeley?
1: Well, they're all interesting set of stories around that. Um, I mean, it wasn't a straight line to where I am now. There was a whole lot of, you know, back and forth and more misery along the way. But one of the uh, major things that happened is when I was in high school, I was uh, became part of a study that Southern Methodist University did using behaviorism to try and control people. And I was an experiment to see if they could control me. Uh, and they did IQ tests and a bunch of stuff, and it actually was a very racist process. And I was one of the white people in the study, but because I even early didn't think like other people, I failed most of their IQ tests and was designated as being, uh, I forgot what they call it, it was like, Uh, slightly mentally retarded or something like that or some crazy thing. Uh, But my mother was asked to sign some forms and she was schizophrenic. So she had a hard time even understanding what they were asking. So she refused to sign them. And they went to the homeroom teacher, Marla Sue Brayden, and said, Marla Sue Brayden, you need to sign these so we can put her in remedial work, so she can be a productive member of society. Martin has been working with me as a a debate class and public speaking. And she told me later, they didn't tell me about this for years, but uh, she told me that she refused to sign the papers. And so the good news was I never got slotted in a way that I was seen as something mentally wrong with me. I didn't make real good grades, but I decided that what I needed to do was get out of Texas. You know, that sounds like a movie title, right? <clears throat> and what it what I knew was the racism that I was immersed in and I was in the Panhandle of Texas originally, but I went to high school in Dallas. Uh, as I had to get out. so. And one night at the end of, uh, of the Baptist college I was sent to, and I, you know, it's like the end of my second year, I think. Me and a group of friends decided we were gonna get in her, her car the next day and we were gonna go to California and see what we could find, maybe only for the summer. I got married nine days. After I met my then husband, who was a lot like my father, you know, you don't learn quickly. Um, he was going back to school at Berkeley to get a master's degree. And we hardly knew each other. I mean, obviously, but he's, I said I wanted to go to school. And he said, well, yeah, you're, you're mostly going to have children being home. Why do you want to go to school? I said, well, I'm not pregnant yet. So I got into Berkeley because I was married to him. I graduated with honors later, but uh, the whole process was like a series of accidents. Uh, But when I got to Berkeley, I met, like I said, Thomas Kuhn. I got very interested in, he, he talked a lot about philosophy and philosophy of science, but he would cite people like Socrates and Pythagoras. And I so I'd go find their books in the library and I would read them. And I got very, very interested in what the role of philosophy was in us coming to see the world differently. And that uh, explained to me a lot about what my grandfather was. He was a philosopher. He was a uh, farmer philosopher, but he was very, very smart. And he was working for they call it, the Farm Bureau, where he taught other people how to farm. And because he had grown up with his indigenous uh, ways, he was very successful in helping people understand how soil worked. And he would talk to me through metaphors about soil. And as I was taking a reading and I got into a bunch of pre-Socratic classes and uh, in that process, I think I made sense out of my own upbringing. There were some big shifts happened then, but they also set the stage for me looking for other philosophical foundations to work from. And that became more the direction I went, but I coupled it with my practicality of starting a business. I started, uh, I did end up having a couple of amazing kids and ended up helping support some others growing up. But I was able to take that work with my own small businesses, which one of them I ended up selling and it ended up being a part of a public offering. So I got enough money to do a few other things and I ended up not staying married very long. Uh, and I think all of that, all of that, those two different sections. I've worked a lot now with the impact of behaviorism on humans and on systems that I was subjected to, uh, and there are many more. In book number seven, which will be 2023, is about how behaviorism has taught us not to think for ourselves, and it's a tragedy because people don't make good choices and they make ones against their own health against democracy, against the nation. And I i got to experience some of that by how I was treated as a child. And so it's not an abstract idea for me. Uh, and I'm really grateful that I got to do all I did at Berkeley. It's an amazing place.
0: So you have undergraduate degrees from UC Berkeley. And uh, in let's see in economics and public law and then graduate degrees from California State University in San Jose yeah
1: I I um that one's in public uh, or excuse me urban planning so I learned about uh, communities and building communities for the few years I did that I couldn't figure out a major that made sense to me and at that stage they didn't let you do so many make up your own so I get a degree in one thing and then take a few more courses and be able to get a, a second one a year later at Berkeley and then I left and I thought I don't know what I'm going to do with public law and my then husband was not understood me going to law school thank goodness I'm glad I didn't do that but when I got to um San Jose State, I was fascinated by uh, how much cities became the infrastructure for how people could live and why poverty and uh, was the way it was and how farms went away because of it. And so uh, I ended up getting to be a part of uh, maybe one of the most important parts of my education was not me in school, but me, I got to be, uh, well, started as um a lecturer there and then got to be an associate faculty member for a couple of years where we took business and urban planning and cybernetic systems. and if you came and entered any of those at a master's degree level you studied all three and there were six faculty members jim clark was one of them who ended up uh getting more on the track of my life is on but we i went to uh, I was one of the people who was supposed to go out and get students to come to this weird trifecta of studies. And I went to Apple, which was barely going public right then. And I got to be uh, in a room with Steve Jobs for a while and convinced him and a group of their HR, sharing something, God, I can't see your face, but um, convinced them to send us they're engineers to get a master's degree in business. And he he did a lot of grilling of us and finally agreed that we took 12 of Apple's first students and put them through this crazy configuration. And it went so well, we got another 12. And uh, then the program was taken apart because the dean died and they brought somebody in. But that time where I got to look at the world through well, they called it cybernetic system. Now it'd be information technology, right? Or computer science, uh, business, and our urban planning. And all of those things are what make up the what's driving our world right now. Technology, right? Business thinking and how we live in cities. So uh, that um, unfolding, that getting, uh, getting to be able to do that. I tried to stay and be a faculty member uh, and then I ran into some more behavioral things. Uh, so I laughed and decided, I, I don't think I want to be a university professor. I originally thought I did, worked on my doctorate and did all that stuff. But uh, it certainly shaped me and shaped how I work to have that much exposure to really, really smart people.
0: If you were to divide your life into like three phases, you being in your third phase right now, what would you say the most valuable lesson that you learned in the first phase of your life and then the most valuable lesson you learned in the second phase of your life?
1: I'm not sure I can think of my life that way. um, They're more like 20 phases. uh, Oh, okay. I don't feel like I'm even done. I mean, I'm now trying, um, I mean, maybe you can tell me what you hear, but I know where I am now is there's a thread that is this idea of people trying to teach me. I I not only couldn't think for myself, I shouldn't try because I would never be smart enough to come up with my own good solutions and then seeing that through every phase of work my in my life uh, where in high school and then in the one or two jobs, I, I was never able to work for people because you couldn't give me uh, delegation. I just, if it didn't make sense to me, I wouldn't do it. So uh, <laughs> I think that uh, continually watching people try and manage me through my father, you know, through the schools, the college, the jobs, the universities I tried to teach in, uh, I think it was each case, it was a thread along the way, making sense of how we got here. And in the last few years, I've become very directed at doing the research on how in the early 20th century, we got restructured as a society And did away with rugged individualism, which is what the nation was founded on, and core entrepreneurship and made instead factory workers and students who were in a factory going to school and churches where people were in a factory and what you believed in that group, all about controlling people rather than uh, lifting up the ableness that people can develop. I don't think we're born complete and know how to be a perfect human being. I think that the work of philosophy uh, and of the people I was running into was all about developing me as a human and the people they touched and growing in a way that you could use the capacity you were born with, but there was no end to where you could be. And yet this crazy infrastructure that's built with behaviorism, like uh, there are now psychological tests for everything. When you're hired, you're assumed you will have to fit into their system and they miss completely their brilliance that people have. And so I learned early in some phase, uh, probably in my late thirties and early forties, how to develop people. And those institutes who were kind enough to manage the the, um, change agent development and business development groups, those are about building a capacity for people to think in a very systemic way. To take on huge changes and my number six book, which I mentioned, by the way, it was number one bestseller on Amazon for six weeks in four categories. It's called Indirect Work. And it's about all the stuff we're talking about. Why is we trying to bring about change in a way that won't work? Why the we, way we're trying to get rid of racism and inequality and uh, even people to change how they deal with climate? We work kind of in a way that's direct. We trying to do this to do that. Here's best practices, here's incentives, rewards, here's laws. All of it is trying to. Uh, do it directly when what's really missing is the capacity of us as humans to see all that for ourselves and think for ourselves. So where I am now, book number seven, is how do we reclaim the human mind and the capacity of it to work? Because we stopped developing it about 100 years ago, a little over. So we can't think for ourselves. We When we get ready to vote, we call our best friend or we look on a website or we uh, follow some tyr- tyrannical leader and we don't ask what's the implication of that? Is it, and we don't trust ourselves to figure it out. So I believe that if we don't reinstitute all these institutions, particularly education and parenting, I run parenting uh, classes, well not classes, communities, where we work with how all these ideas apply to parenting like. How do you teach a child to think for themselves when most of what we do is say good boy, good girl, which means we're affirming what we think and they therefore take that on? Then we're startled when they get into be teenagers and they instead of adopting our ideas, they adopt a friend's and another friend. We don't teach them to assess for themselves and to discover who they are individually who say, be like your brother or be like your father or you know, grow up to do this because you'll make a lot of money. We we don't give kids the capacity to have judgment and discernment, starting when they're young. And it's actually not hard to do, but we become so determined that they may get the wrong idea, we hurry up and give them our ideas, and they have a void in their own mind except for our ideas and probably the ideas we didn't want them to have. So my work right now is a lot about helping children and young people like even my grandson work on writing their own thinking and creating how to assess what's going on in the world and how to assess an idea about what will make it work and how to try it out. And then how to write about it, and then see what you couldn't see. I mean, I look back at my current six books, and I <laughs> I kind of laugh when I see what I can see that I couldn't see in book one or articles before that. So this phase, if it is a phase, and you know, I'm about to be 80 years old, so we'll see uh, how much longer I get to work on it. But it's about awakening. Uh, And I draw, not on popular psychology, I'm not a fan of all the pop stuff people write about, uh, affirmations and things, because again, those sound like programming robots, but um, I believe that if we are in communities which are working developmentally and working from what I call lineage-tested methodologies, like they been through, uh, I've studied uh, all kinds of Buddhism, particularly Mahayana, uh, through Hinduism, particularly Sri Aurobindo and the Mother, through um, the Socratic and Pythagorean, not only practical things, but the spiritual part of it. Uh, And then I've already mentioned a series of uh, indigenous connections. Those are tested. And we know that they grow people into being parts of community and healthy and uh, are not a self-centered, which most pop psychology is. How do you get what you want? You know, <laughs> what's the secret to getting what you want, right? We're not about what I want. My life is, so if I die tomorrow, I love saying this, I have had the most amazing life. I've gotten to be with the most profound people, many who are Uh, Black Africans who lived in townships and slept on the floor with aluminum roofs were some of the wisest people I met. So I want everyone to have that kind of meaning in their life. Um, And that's why you were granted a body for some undetermined time, right? Go see what you can do. So that's my, my... current era I know it's the last one but that's the current one is that a reasonable answer to your question
0: yes that was phenomenal um which I I feel like I have met uh a kindred spirit here I so I I um I left the fire department, or I left the fire service in two thousand and nineteen, uh, mm. uh, right before Thanksgiving. and it was um, not by my own volition. i I didn't want to leave, um, yeah. but but i I did. and i I set out on this path to really you, you know, I had this identity crisis. for twenty three years, I served in the fire service. And all of a sudden, that identity was no more. And I dove into philosophy. And wow. I um I really wanted to figure out who I was at the core and, and what that meant and what my ultimate purpose was and what I what I feel like I've discovered through Reading philosophy, uh, world religions—I I feel like there's this common thread that—that just—it's it, through throughout history. Uh, you know, the the greatest thinkers have sat around contemplating that, like, what is our purpose? Why are we here? All that, and and I think that it comes down to we are here to work really hard at adding value to ourselves so that we can then add value to those around us. It's our Mm -hmm. contribution to the ones that we love, to our community. It's about making that better through hard work. And it's about your contribution. I believe. Yeah. And, and I, I feel like that's, kind of what you said, it's, it's about the community. It's not, you, you have to commit to improving yourself so that you're better able to add value to others. And that's, that's the contribution, that, that hard work you and regardless of your occupation, your purpose remains the same. Whatever you choose to do is that exp- the expression of that purpose. So I was still living my purpose in the fire service, but that was not my purpose. And my work did not provide me meaning. I gave meaning to that work. Yeah. Uh,
1: I mean, I, I feel a shared sense of intention between us. Uh, I have a few different things. I language slightly differently uh, that temp tip them in a slight different direction if that would be worth sharing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, I think the idea of human individual humans having purpose is a popular psychology idea. I do think that humans have meaning, but I think we have a role in something larger. And every time we make it about our purpose, we end up collapsing it into a uh, self-centered view. I say, I have a role and the purpose of some greater whole. And it is my job to figure that out and I've evolved what I understand that is through time. Uh, And it certainly is to be what I call externally considering. I consider that which is around me uh, and learned a lot of that from my grandmother of this grandfather. He was very good at getting us to notice the effect we had on other people. And that every day the way we live, we're affecting them. Uh, but the one thing that I learned another popular psychology idea is the word improve and grow, where in the lineage teachers they talk about develop. It's and the difference is we are tend to improve ourselves and grow ourselves based on society and what's out there. Development is about understanding. One unchangeable part of us have, which are not part, but deep aspect of us, which is our essence. When you were born, when I was born, we came with uh, something distinctive about who we are that we had to develop, it, but it's always been there. Like, for example, I'm, I'm doing, you can see some of mine right now. I tend to disrupt certainty. And I've done that since I was a very small child. I, would, I didn't agree with people even when I was four. I was in trouble because I could see something different. And I think I was born with its essence. And who knows uh, where it comes from? I don't have any uh, <clears throat> spiritual idea about where it comes from. I believe it exists in each living system. I believe a life shed. Uh, I call them that the watersheds because watershed is anthropocentric. It's about humans. Where life shed is about all that's alive there. It ha- Each one has an essence. Uh, each child. Do you have children? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. So each of them have an essence. You have one. And it has nothing to do with your personality. It's this deep thing like I'm saying mine is more like disrupt certainty. Don't let people be certain about things that the odds are good. It's based on a false premise. Teach them how not not by disagreeing, but teach them how to examine it. So everywhere I go, I'm teaching people how to examine the premise that they're living their life on. It becomes a part of how you do a corporate change. Are you basing the uh, how you run a business based on false premises about the markets, about your customer, but about democracy as well. So, if we can connect, that essence has been with you through everything through the fire department, through now. And to me, what you're doing when you say faces of your life, to me, that's more about the revealing, the ex- uh, ex- exhibiting, and embedding my essence work not me into it but using it so my power design when I go help redesign a work system or a reparenting idea is to get people to question from my essence work is to get them to question what they're currently basing things on and have a way to articulate something new that also means I have to work on my own fears because I'm, because of the way I was raised, I was raised with the tons of things I was afraid of, right? And I have to learn to manage that. And my attachments to my ideas and my, I, you mean, you talk about identity. When you lose your identity, you, there's a lot of fear comes with that and confusion. You have to learn to manage that stuff or you can't keep going forward. You have to manage your arrogance and your self-centeredness. And I don't mean you per se, I mean us as humans. So in order for our essence to be able to do its work in the world, we have to manage this being body that we're in and the mind that we built so far and how poorly it can think. But if we can develop us, we can bring forward that essence and we will benefit, but we will mostly feel fulfilled, not successful. Uh, It'll be some so... um, that's kind of how I think about similar ways of thinking about what you were
0: describing. What you just said about fulfillment, I, I, I recently had a conversation when I was the guest on another podcast where we were talking about this very thing, and I feel like that is what we're all chasing is that sense of fulfillment how to best experience it or how it it manifests itself in in an individual. I think the purest way is when we do add value to somebody else, where we help them achieve something or help them experience uh, something good. And that sense of fulfillment, it's, comes from a selfless place it's like you're you're being true to that community that you were a part of yeah and I when I was talking about phases that was just kind of like the way that I've kind of put um I don't know a, a rough category to it where you know in these different phases of our life the first phase and it's not really a timeline it's just the first experiences that we have that kind of shape the direction of the second phase and then the second phase is kind of where we're really coming into our our own and learning what we're most capable of and how we can uh shape the world around us and then that third phase is more like when we we've, we've experienced so much and now it's time for us to start giving back and sharing the wisdom that we've gained but we're still learning and we understand okay. that it's this continuous process where ideas that we have and like hold on to in the beginning of that third phase can be so much different as we progress through that that phase in our life and I just think that it's I I identify it as a phase just as a way to describe kind of the the experiences in 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 a a group Um, well
1: and I understand the idea of phases I use phases also in my work your phases are in the world of existence how you move through existence mine are in the world of essence how essence evolves and how um we become different beings not in what we do or so much in existence but it's it, i don't teach those in the conversation but i have five kind of spiritual phases that people can move through they're not mine i had them elsewhere, so, I understand the concept. Uh, I just couldn't quite relate to it since I don't think about my life as physical phases, but more as uh, evolution of, and I think it's the same kind of idea. I just always have trouble answering questions when people ask me about uh, who I became, who I am. I mean, it's a long story. You got a few years. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: I. I. Um... I just felt that opening up that dialogue because you have a depth to you that i knew that there was going to be some enlightenment for me so it was kind of self-serving but uh <laughs> you know i um i i really appreciate you uh indulging me um, sure <laughs> but that uh i i do like I like how you expressed it uh, much better and i and I feel like I have gained some better understanding uh of i don't know how to articulate that because i I feel like I grasp what you're saying well, almost as though it's somewhat innate, yeah. I didn't expect to have this conversation this is really awesome thank you
1: <laughs> well your delight your humility makes it very easy to just jump in and go forward and the, your own um <clears throat> demand of yourself to learn and grow and develop as i call it is a com- my most favorite conversations uh, you know i hate the questions about what are your three takeaways for my audience Hell, I don't know. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so this was the best kind of conversation.
0: Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I I, I want to, you know, I, I, I feel like the, the pop culture kind of questions leave a lot to be desired I understand where they come from. you know it's a it's a quick fix on some uh, quick wisdom, but there's there's so much more to it. and I, I while I think I do kind of utilize some of those tools, the thing that I like most about these conversations is that I usually go into them with very little expectation because I don't know where they're going to go. Yeah. Um, and I just know that I'm having a conversation with a really interesting person.
1: Yeah.
0: And I, I want to learn as much as I can from them for that short period of time that I, I get to talk with them. And to be able to talk with somebody with your experiences and, and your life and your wisdom, um, I, I like to think of myself as a philosopher, but the biggest part of that is just always asking why, why do yeah. I believe this? Why, yeah. and why do I think I understand this concept? Right. <laughs> yeah. The fact well,
1: that really you, my, my favorite question to ask people uh, and I, I do a podcast also, but it has no interviews. It's a narrative. Uh, but I often suggest to people ask why, but ask where did you source that answer? Because our why's tend to be mechanically put in our mind and we interpret our own next why in that same context. So if you can, when you're searching to try and disrupt yourself, it's to ask where did I source that? Did I take that from my parents, from my church, from my culture? Uh, did I read certain people? I mean, I love my favorite game to play with myself is to write a statement about something I think ought to change and then question every premise I can think of that that's founded on. And where did those premises come from? Because that's the disruption, disrupting certainty I love doing it to myself. And it's how I try and work with other people. So it might be fun, add to your why. Where did it source that idea from?
0: Yeah, no, I, you've given me such a a great idea, you know, an exercise to do with my daughter. So I have a 15 year old daughter Uh and, and I try to I, I try to make my work about making the world a better place for her and understanding and maybe even kind of predicting uh, by watching how history has unfolded, but trying to think of like what kind of world is she going to experience as she uh, as she grows older? Well,
1: and- Einstein would tell you, you can't know that anyway. So all you can do is help her learn to think about how she answered that question in the moment. You, you ought to come join our parenting community. Oh, I would love that. Uh, if you go to seedhavencommunities dot com, we have a, a whole a quarterly event where we take the kind of ideas we're talking about and look at how they apply to parenting. So. Uh, it might not be something that's worth doing. And we have communities of people raising kids together, which are from grandparents uh, down to birth parents or adopted parents. We have quite a few adoptions, Because I do think there's a big opportunity for the next generations of kids.
0: So you said seed hyphen community?
1: See, yeah, seed S-E-E-D hyphen communities, plural dot com okay and then you look for the parenting tab uh and any of your listeners who end up listening to this are welcome to go check it out it's been going for a while and we're recording some past events and uh so so it might not be a good fit for most people but seems like you might enjoy it
0: i think i would I, I I believe you you said that you've studied Buddhism, and and Hinduism, yeah. And and I was wondering how those have informed your life. Well,
1: the philosophy there in them. Uh, so I look for threads across multiple things, and if I find a thread that looks. Like it shows up everywhere, like including esoteric Christianity, not the popularized versions of uh, churches necessarily, but there's some amazing ancient wisdom uh, in esoteric Christianity. So what I do, the way I use those um, arenas is I say, what is it they all say? I mean, look, we all know now they have something that's the version of the golden rule. But there are many things, like another one that runs through all of those is we're born incomplete as humans and need to be developed to actually live a good life, a meaningful life. That said, in some way, in every one of those traditions. And then they all have methodologies. But the other thing they all say is uh, don't don't trust the guru. Uh, that the they're there to help ask questions and to stimulate your thinking but learn to do your own work and that, believe it or not that's in every major tradition from uh i mean if you Mahayana buddhism which is where the dalai lama comes from the dalai lama loves quoting christian christian uh, and birdie who's a hindu right and he said you know that man has a good idea don't trust of the guru, he said, Don't trust the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and what he means is not, I'm untrustworthy. He means your job is to develop your own best thinking, test in life, take responsibility for effects. So for me, all of those uh, traditions, whether they're uh, more secular like Socrates, he says the same thing. So I, uh, that's how I use all of them. I don't follow. I mean, in each case, I spent some time trying to understand and use it for my own development. But mostly, what I've done is kind of like a um. I don't like the word survey. I'm trying to think what it is an immersion, looking for the commonality that every major spiritual tradition and indigenous tradition. Says it's about what it takes to be a full human, so that's what I do with those.
0: I found myself doing the same thing when I was doing this, this yeah, soul searching, and um, and that's where I came up with that common thread of, yeah. uh, you know, our, our that that sense of fulfillment comes from adding value to those around us. Being, yeah. you know, being an integral part, or not an integral part, but a contributing piece to a much larger, uh, you know, something bigger than ourselves, our right. community, or, or the space that we live in. And, and I just- um, and,
1: you, and you know, I, I love that you did that. And the real fun thing will be, because you have a really g- good concept about phases would be to go do that same project 10 years from now because you will not see the same thread in the same way, the same language. Uh, Cause I can hear in some of your language that you're carrying some older ideas and using some old language and trying to give it new meaning. And I'm not gonna tell you what I'm seeing, but uh, I think I see it in me where I will have an idea and I'll see the new thing with the old lens. And so it'd be really fun, even five years, go read several of the, you know, pick five of the traditions you were reading and read them now with having sought to live from the one that you have right this minute. It'd be really fun to say, ah, I, I'm telling you something I've done that's amazing. I. I have a bookshelf you can see behind me. The one directly behind me is full of primarily those lineage spiritual teachings in those two bookcases. Got other rooms with other bookcases. But I often pull off something and read through it. And I go, oh my God, how did I miss that? Uh, and it doesn't take me long to say because I wanted it to be the way I was interpreting it before. It gave uh affirmation to my worldview and we all like to be affirmed in our worldview we're right right we can make sense so it's a good exercise to see our own evolution through going back through and i don't think you can do this with all material but ancient teachings you can do it and there's something new every time
0: for those listening the best way for people to connect with you would that be through a website or
1: yeah so uh, i have a website called carolsanford.com it's all about me right (laughs) and on that website are threads out into my things there is on carolsanford.com are all my books on one page and you can read and see what they're about and if you want to start figure out where uh, the newest book, yeah, Indirect Work, the one that won the uh, six weeks and number one bestseller on Amazon uh, has a whole page right now that speaks a bit to what it's about. But it also has uh, a very popular thing to do, which is give away things to people by books. So you can go buy one through a hundred and something books on there. And it tells you, well, if you send me an email which is on there. Uh, I don't remember which ones, but it's on that page. And it would tell you what you get and what you do to get it to me. And uh, most of them were live, but they're all recorded now uh, free self-assessments of free self assessments of how to apply it to a business, um, uh, key stories that have come out of my work experience and companies. And a... Uh, uh, a recording of how to work with those and how to make sense out of them so you could do buy some number of books you have to send me the receipt in the way it instructs and then you could get access to those recordings if you're a business i've got something you can join but the individuals can't which is how to build a business the way i'm talking about you know what we've done in colgate and google and uh, seventh Generation and NuMeetee and all those folks, uh, there's more about how we work with them and how you might be able to join some of those things if you wanted. And that there's a third thread, which was off the seed communities, which is where individuals or non-business people can join, but change agents who work in business or coaching or wherever they work, We have a community that still from calcentra.com, you scroll down and it'll give you those three different directions you can go uh, and a bit about the summits that we run for people who want to step in for a short period of time. So that's how you find me. Awesome.
0: Thank you so much, Carol. I I really appreciate you taking the time with me today.
1: Uh, Well, i tell you what, Dave, it's been a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed it thank you for having
0: me thank you for listening to this episode of from embers to excellence please like and subscribe to my youtube channel follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content my goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible so if i can be of any assistance to you or someone you know Please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts, linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.